to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome back to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to resilience, business continuity, disaster planning, uh, crisis communications, and anything that can be related to those topics. Speaking of topics, again, if there is something specific you'd like us to address on the show or you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. Go to the show's webpage on the voiceofamerica.com site. There is a button underneath the graphic that says send the host an email. All the emails come to me and I do respond to everything. And we'll see about uh, finding someone to talk about your topic or making arrangements and get you to come on the show. Uh, Remind everyone, again, this year, it looks like we'll be uh, broadcasting live from the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference in Phoenix, Arizona, this year, September 29th to October 2nd. I'm not sure exactly which date in there we're going to broadcast from, but we will be there again. It was a great success last year, so I'm looking forward to it this year. If there's, if you'd like to come on the show to talk about a product or a service, please feel free. Let me know. We do have some sponsorships and uh, advertising available for you. And today's show is brought to us by Stone Road, Inc., who bring us BoastAssessment.com, um, where you can actually go on and um, do your own program self-assessment, including uh, questions around risk analyses, BIAs, uh, how you're managing your resources, and uh, it's a lot uh, cheaper than and bringing in people and paying lots and lots of money to do that for you so you can monitor yourself. Uh, If you're a long-time listener, you know I like to read a lot, and my bookshelves are full, and they've even gotten bigger since I've started doing this show um, a year and a half ago. And uh, recently, I purchased a book, uh, Community Resilience and Environmental Transitions, and I thought this is an interesting topic. There's a lot of talk about uh, resilient communities in the news these days, and I'm hearing it at conferences. I'm seeing it in uh, uh, different uh, periodicals and on websites. So I reached out to the author of this book, and I'm lucky enough today to have him joining us from uh, Plymouth, UK, um, not far actually from where I was born. So I'd like to welcome to the show the author of Community Resilience and Environmental Transitions, Mr. Jeff Wilson. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hello, and thanks for having me. Uh, could you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself? Uh, I know that uh, you know I've done my research, um, but for our global listeners out there, um, let's uh, could you let them know a little about yourself, what you do and where you are and how you got into all of this? Yes, sure. I've got quite a varied background. Um, I parents were British and French. I lived in Germany where I studied and then I went to New Zealand to do a PhD. That was in the late 1980s and that's, I guess, where I already got interested into questions related to resilience, although in those days not many people would talk about the term. And then I was lucky enough to get a job at King's College London in the Department of Geography and then I got a professorship at the University of Plymouth from 2004 onwards where I've been ever since. And my research, really right from the start, has been touching upon questions of resilience. 
Now, correct me if I'm right, you're calling us today from uh, Plymouth, right? That's correct. Uh, just just uh, so uh, everyone knows, that was my late father's favorite team, Pompey. And hopefully they make <laughs> it back to the Premier League top flight. <laughs> That's I, pretty bad. <laughs> no, no, I'm not much into football, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, I, I live and breathe that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in your book, um, there's a lot of information in here. You talk about uh, community resilience. For clarity for our people that are out there, they, there's different definitions of community resilience. What do you mean when you say community resilience? So what is it and what is it not? Yeah, that's an important question. I mean, as a geographer, for me, scale is important. So in the book and also in my research linked to the topics addressed in the book, I focus very much on communities. And communities here, we mean, that is, we, myself and my research team, focus on human communities, and we usually think of a community more in terms of a village or a small town, a kind of a small unit of people rather than a huge urban area, for example. So scale and resilience is a very, very important question, and I think one thing we may want to talk about today is also how easy or not it is to actually scale up from the community level to larger scales, to talk about regional resilience, or indeed even national or global resilience. So our research is focused very much at the local level, trying to understand how human communities uh, tackle disturbances, hazards, things coming to them from the outside that may disturb how they do things. So on the, on the flip side, what is resiliency not? Because believe it or not, I still see uh, the odd advertisement article you know from people that are out there if you buy a specific product if you do one specific thing then you're automatically resilient and i don't think that's correct i think you're right but the problem with these broad terms the same happened with with sustainability is that as soon as uh, a term such as resilience becomes accepted by the mainstream and i think we're, we're at the stage where resilience is mentioned by basically everybody. I think it's probably mentioned more often these days than the notion of sustainability. And the more stakeholder groups mention it, the more fuzzy the term becomes. So you could argue there's an academic definition out there, which is actually quite narrow. It's about how a system, in our case, a human system, copes with disturbances. I mean, that's in, in one sentence. The definition I would use as an academic But for stakeholders outside of academia, especially politicians, but maybe also businesses, I think the term resilience has taken on a much, much broader definition. And I think, indeed, many people use it interchangeably with sustainability. And I would say the two terms are related, but they're by no means the same thing. I mean, sustainability and resilience address similar issues with regard to how human systems could be made to last longer, effectively. But I think resilience is much more about identifying individual traits of a system that allow that system to survive in the first instance and then to thrive and to develop in a second instance. So it's more, you're, you see it more as people-focused, is that right? But a, a well, very simple way of saying it? That's another important clarification. I mean, the, the term initially actually started in other disciplines, especially ecology or engineering, 
uh, they've used the term resilience uh, a lot, and then it was gradually incorporated into discussions about how human systems can be made to cope better with disturbances. So the term has had quite a long and complicated history, and the research that I do, uh, I must admit, only covers one of these rather broader aspects of resilience. So if you had an engineer, they could also talk about resilience, but they would approach it from a very different perspective than I do as a social scientist. Okay. So you also talk about the various kinds of disturbances that are out there, uh, natural disturbances and something you call anthropogenic, am I saying this right, anthropogenic? Yeah, anthropogenic, yeah, human-made disturbances. Ah, so could you explain uh, what both of those are and give us some examples and, and then yes, how that indeed. relates I mean, to what you're doing? Yep. So most people, when they think about resilience and say resilience of human communities, they would probably think about natural disturbances first. So it could be the resilience of a community to a natural hazard, such as a hurricane or a tsunami or an earthquake. And that is certainly one of the aspects uh, we're looking at. I mean, for example, I've done some research in Christchurch in New Zealand, looking at how Christchurch that was affected by a severe earthquake a few years ago is, is coping or has coped with that and is rebuilding. But at the same time, there are also human-made disturbances, so anthropogenic disturbances. And this is, I think, for me again as a social scientist, where the question actually becomes very interesting because we're also talking about things that are maybe not quite so obvious uh, to, to your listeners. I mean, we're talking here, for example, about political disturbance, economic disturbance, or indeed social or cultural disturbance. And you can already see there are, <clears throat> there are therefore different types of disturbances, and the time horizons of these disturbances can be very different. So quite often, but not exclusively, natural disturbances are quite sudden. An earthquake, a tsunami, a hurricane, whereas in terms of human disturbances, very often you're talking about what we call a slow-onset disturbances. So they may be like a gradual change. Some, sometimes they may take years or even decades to have an impact on a community. So as researchers, one of the problems we face when we're studying resilience is to understand the different temporal scales of disturbances. And there are, on the whole, differences between natural and human-made disturbances. But then having said that, if you think about climate change, probably the biggest and most important disturbance that any community on the planet is facing, here we are indeed talking about a long term disturbance, a slow onset disturbance, a combination, one could say, of human and natural factors. Is it possible, you, during your talk, I was thinking, you know, you mentioned um, economic, social, and political, you know, the human disturbances. Can that, those be affected by uh, the natural disaster has, hazards or triggers? You know, an earthquake yes, can trigger indeed. political yeah. I mean, both in the book and in subsequent research, we've actually worked on a conceptual model trying to understand how we could actually, if you want, conceptualize or understand the response of communities to disturbances. And we've split that into uh, environmental or natural factors and then social, economic, political, and cultural factors. So we've got five what we call dimensions that, in our view, make up 
a system and that can be in some ways the reason for a loss of resilience and increase in vulnerability and it also highlights that all of these factors, either natural and the social, are very closely interlinked. So you're absolutely right. If we're thinking about climate change as a disturbance, I mean, a simple example could be um, a community in um, a Pacific Island community on a very low-lying island, which Mm -hmm. is influenced by sea level rise. So here we would have um, a climate change-related trigger that may lead to a loss of resilience, especially if they have to move away completely. But we still can't understand fully the resilience of the community without then also understanding what the economic, social, cultural, political situation of that community is. Have they got enough money to deal with the system? Have they got enough social networks, powerful social networks, to actually better cope with the problem, etc.? So we can never fully understand the resilience of a community, of any human system indeed, without acknowledging that all of these different dimensions are very closely interlinked. I was just going to ask that. Are, are they interlinked? Like, Can you have uh, economic and social but not have political turmoil? Yes. Is that, I mean, we've done, is, um, is, I'll just mention a few examples of research that myself and my team have done in the last few years. So we've worked in a, a small community, rural community in China, We've done work in remote mountain communities in the Alps, and we're currently working in Tanzania with Maasai communities that are um, um, affected by land degradation issues. And in all of these communities, we find that specific aspects, i.e. one of these or two or three of these different dimensions, are what is causing a loss of resilience. So, for example... In the alpine communities that we worked at, the the economic uh, factors were fairly strongly developed. They rely on tourism, and tourism is doing reasonably well, or has done reasonably well in the last 20 years. They still have uh, very strong what we call cultural capital, but the social capital was quite weak. They're beginning to lose the networks, especially young people moving away from the community, so that that is disrupting the ability of the communities to act as a whole and to have strong networks. And, of course, they are challenged by climate change-related factors, such as um, increasingly unpredictable snowfall and snow cover affecting the skiing industry and therefore having a ripple effect through all these other dimensions. So in many cases, or pretty much in all cases, in our case studies, some of these dimensions are quite well-developed and the communities are therefore able to cope with the disturbances, but other dimensions are less well-developed, which is uh, challenging the resilience of these systems. So what is important for your um, listeners to realize is that nowhere on the planet is there a human community that is fully resilient. I mean, there will always be something that drags the community towards vulnerability. However, on the other side of the spectrum, unfortunately, we have quite a few examples of communities that have completely lost resilience. And the best indicator of that is if the community has not survived. It's disappeared, it's been wiped out, or people have left for whatever reasons. So we have plenty of examples of that, but there's basically no example of a community that is fully resilient, where basically every indicator, every dimension is perfectly developed. I guess that's, is that, because it's unattainable or just simply because we don't adapt fast enough to change to be, be 
become fully resilient? Like, there's too much change. Yeah, I mean, every community, of course, will try to survive as best it can and to, to develop as, as well as it can. But human systems are incredibly dynamic. I mean, things can change very quickly. I mean, think about political change, even at the local level within the community, or look at the situation in the UK at the moment with, with Brexit and uh, things are changing on a weekly basis in terms of the uncertainty that is causing. So communities have to adapt very quickly. The situation is highly dynamic, so it would be very unlikely that factors that were in place a few years ago and may have actually yielded a very resilient community would still be the same factors that you'd need today in a changing world. So I think by nature, mm -hmm. human systems, because of their dynamism, always somehow need to find a, a way to improve uh, the, the situation. Uh, having said that, of course, there are many communities in the world, and this is both in advanced economies and developing world and transition economies, where some communities are really doing well and have done well for quite a while. So we can learn from those who have done better, especially those that seem to have coped better with external disturbances that may affect any community on the planet at one point or another. So it could be weather-related disturbances, for example. So some communities definitely are doing well, but I would still maintain that there will be, if you dig deeply, certain elements even in these perfect communities that are actually not quite as perfect as they could be because of these constant changes. Well, I guess it, it's like the old saying, not, there's no such thing as perfect. You know, there's always Indeed, something yeah. to, to leverage and learn because change That's is That's right, and I think we, we, as researchers, but also policymakers who are using the work we're doing to possibly improve the situation of communities, just need to acknowledge that. I, I think it would be impossible to create policies that would be, A, applicable across the globe, because you have to cater for individual circumstances, you have to cater for individual socioeconomic and cultural traits of communities. But I think it would also be impossible to arrive at a set of indicators that everybody would agree with are needed for resilience. So we've, we've just, uh, in the last two, three years, have started writing about how the understandings of resilience and how you measure it by the indicators used to assess resilience, how they can actually change from a cultural context to another. So not everybody around the world will agree on the same indicators to assess resilient quality. I mean, I'll just mention one example. So in most countries in the Western world, uh, we would agree that uh, empowering women would be a good thing for the resilience of communities. But in some cultural contexts, possibly in the Middle East, for example, that may not be seen by everybody as something that is actually strengthening resilience. So you can see this is quite mm -hmm. a a controversial example, uh, and we have to be very aware, I think both as researchers but also as policymakers, of uh, what in research we call our positionality, or the positions we take with regard to what indicators we see as actually being strong indicators of resilience, and that uh, there will always be sociocultural differences in terms of how we interpret what actually makes a strongly resilient system or not. Associated with that is also the interesting question that if, say, as a Western researcher, we go into non-Western cultural contexts 
and start making assumptions about whether a community is resilient or vulnerable, sometimes, you know, if you look at some pieces of research, you could argue that um, results about resilience arrive to possibly a little bit uncritically, i.e. that people maybe don't quite fully understand the sociocultural context in which they work to really assess whether a community is more or less resilient. So to us, a community may not look resilient at all, mm -hmm. say somewhere in Africa or South America or wherever. But if you dig a little bit deeper, these communities may actually, in fact, be quite resilient, which is using Western-influenced indicators to assess resilience, which may not be always applicable in other cultural contexts. And I think that's a good spot to end on our first segment. We're talking today with, and I introduced you wrong, I should have said Profes Professor George, Jeff Wilson. So we'll be right back with okay. Professor Jeff Wilson, the author of Community Resilience and Environmental Transitions. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We are talking with Professor Jeff Wilson, uh, the author of Community Resilience and Environmental Transitions. Uh, Jeff, in the first segment, we talked a lot about uh, you know, defining resiliency and uh, natural and human hazards. You also talk about transition theory in, in your book. What is that? And can you give us an example of that? Yeah, I've been interested in, in transition theory for a long time, and I've actually applied that theory 
also to research before I started working on resilience. And I mean, very briefly, transition theory tries to understand changes in human societies over time and tries to conceptualize, I mean, we use different models to do that, tries to conceptualize how change is occurring, whether there are specific triggers, whether change is slow or abrupt, and of course, in human societies, all of this is applying. So you've got very sudden changes, you've got very fast changes. So transition theory kind of encapsulates this kind of approach and can be applied to basically anything, really. It's a very elegant theory in that sense. Could you give us an example? You know, uh, of, yeah, of... Yes, I mean, where, where it's in academic terms, where, where it's been uh, applied by a lot of people was the transition in post-Soviet Union countries, so Eastern European countries that until 1990 were under the political and, you could argue, economic umbrella of the Soviet Union. And with the breakdown of Soviet Union, researchers applied transition theory to understand how Eastern European countries were transitioning away from that socialist Soviet model towards becoming independent nation-states. So that certainly, in my case, influenced my thinking a lot, and that's the first time I came across transition theory. And then I thought, okay, that sounds interesting, and I'll try and apply some of the assumptions of that theory to understanding how resilience or vulnerability of communities around the world change. Now, now that actually brings me to the next question. Does that uh, move into what you were calling transition towns movement? Is it related yeah, to that? Yeah, there is a link. I mean, interesting, I don't know whether your, your listeners know a lot about the Transition Town Initiative, but uh, not far from here in Plymouth, in a small town called Totnes, um, sits a person called Rob Hopkins, who is one of the initiators of the Transition Town um, initiative, and he was uh, actually one of my PhD students. So with Rob Hopkins, we certainly had a lot of discussions about how you can transition communities away in the context of transition towns, away from oil dependency, but also away from globalized pathways of change. So it's very much about relocalization in the transition town movement, and that chimes quite well with some of the indicators that we as resilience researchers would see as scoring quite highly in terms of making communities resilient, bearing in mind what we discussed earlier about how transposable these indicators are in a global context. So how do you do that with, you know, might as well ask the question, how do you do that with, uh, you know, towns to kind of move them in that direction? Because I know we've got a lot of emergency planners that listen to the show and, you know, uh, different people working on disaster risk reduction. So how, how do we yeah. actually move that? You know, how do we make that happen? Well, the first thing to say, it is very difficult because <laughs> in transition theory, there are important um, constraints, especially with regard to human systems, and we call these lock-ins and past dependencies. So both of these are related terms. So um, the argument here is that Human societies, irrespective of where they live, are very often locked in to certain ways of doing things. So one lock-in is, for example, the oil dependency of modern society or other types of dependencies. You could argue internet dependency is possibly a new lock-in. Past dependencies highlight, or the notion of past dependencies, highlights that 
it is actually quite difficult for societies to leave what we call the pathways of the possible. And that means that there are usually quite narrow bands of decision-making within which human society can decide to change. So transition theory with regard to human systems highlights quite clearly, I mean, a lot of research case studies have been done on that, that it is actually very difficult to abruptly change a system from one state to another. So usually you're talking about gradual change. So with transition towns, I mean, what Rob Hopkins in Totnes is trying to do is partly to change the physical nature of the town, so reducing the dependency on chain stores. Uh, they planted nut trees on any available green space. People can use each other's gardens to plant things and to grow things. So all of that is great and hugely important and, I would say, increases the resilience of the community. But the most important thing and that uh, transition town um, uh, people are advocating is actually changing attitudes of people, changing perceptions and attitudes. So they acknowledge that that is a long-term process. It may change, it may take one or two generations to change attitudes towards, for example, oil dependency, towards being strongly embedded in the global capitalist system. Some people would argue that's one of the things that is actually problematic, but very difficult for communities to come out of that completely. So it is, this, again, this combination of, of practical things that can be done, and you can, you know, within a few years, you can show people, you can show visitors that your town has changed, but the key thing is to change what's happening in, in people's heads, i.e. the attitudes and perceptions, and that is much more difficult to achieve, and you have to be much more convincing about that really in the long term to show change is, is actually occurring. And that's usually where thing actually breaks down. I that people, they will do little things to change, but they don't do enough to really lead to complete what we call transitional rupture, something that changes completely and, and changes this part, or, or gets rid of these past dependencies. Would those little changes, uh, though not help long term? If if we always did a lot of small changes, would we not eventually make a big change? Because it, yes, as you said, yes. I mean, it's going to take a long time, right? There is an argument for that. And there's also something we're looking at in the context of resilience, which is called social memory. And we argue that social memory is, is a hugely important um, uh, thing in, in communities in that it is about knowledge and, and wisdom passed on if you want, through the generations in communities. I mean, that is assuming, you know, you have networks of people who, who stay somehow linked to a community, which is not always the case in, in a modern globalized world. But you're right. I mean, the cumulative effect of small changes, of course, in the end, may actually suddenly tip, tip the balance. And sometimes we as people may not even realize that there has been actually a tipping, tipping point that has been reached and that a community has suddenly become much more resilient than it, than it was before. But unfortunately, very often, you need uh, a lot of very dedicated people to keep these little things going. And um, the criticism of the Transition Town Initiative ha has been, and, and as you know, this is kind of a worldwide movement. I mean, there are thousands of towns that claim to be transition towns 
uh, all around the world, is that there's been a, a lack of continuity in terms of the effect. So occasionally you get a person, like a leader, emerging, and they're really enthusiastic and things change. But as soon as that person leaves or that, that group of enthusiastic people, things kind of slip back very quickly again uh, you know, mm-hmm. to the old ways, to the maybe slightly less resilient ways. So the issue of continuity and small incremental changes is, is a problem. But this relates to one of the things that we talk a lot about in the context of transition theory, because in the end, if you recognize that a community is losing resilience quite rapidly for whatever reasons, what you want is a transitional rupture. You want something that suddenly changes and that really brings that community onto a different plane. I, we would say, you know, if you have a model with an XY axis on a higher plane, I higher towards a more resilient pathways. And, and sometimes, you know, you need something pretty radical to do that. I mean, it could be a political shift to change a leadership, for example. It could be a sudden injection of a lot of money that may enable changes to happen. But very often, it's very difficult to implement such a rupture. So it's, 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 uh, sometimes it's a compromise, I guess, between small incremental change, yes, if it can be sustained, and bigger things, you know, possibly we could call them ruptures that will elevate the resilience of the community. It's interesting you mentioned what you said about social memory, you know, the, the knowledge uh, uh, being passed passed on to others. In today's world, that's got to be even more difficult because, you know, people only remember what they last read on their cell phone, you know, or, or you know, on Facebook or something like that. So, you know, how do, how do you kind of, do you have any suggestions on how to make that happen? Because you mentioned you yeah. uh, know, things uh, will change. Is, very important question because, yeah, as you say, in our globalized world, I mean, very often people don't have that strong a link anymore to their community anyway. I mean, people live all over the place and families do not live together as they did 200 or 300 years ago. But you could argue, you know, that maybe with, with social media and the internet, there are actually new opportunities that are arising in terms of building, you know, virtual communities and that it's social memory, if it can be harnessed in a certain way, could actually be expressed through social media in order, you know, to raise resilience levels of communities where, where people live in. But we come back to the, the question right at the beginning, you know, how do you define the communities that the resilience we, we would like to see applies to? And as we are still using very much a geographical definition of community, i.e. a place, a village, a community of people who live together, you're absolutely right that in a modern globalized world, these types of communities are becoming rarer and rarer. Having said that, though, um, I'm actually in a little village near Plymouth on the coast. It's beautiful here, and it's a small community with maybe two or 3,000 people living here. And I would actually say that places like this still have a very strong sense of community and actually quite strong social memory in terms of, you know, passing on traditions through the families who've lived here for for a long time, several generations. And in some cases, these are uh, traditions, rights, knowledges that do actually help maintain the resilience of the community or even in some cases actually raise the resilience of the communities. So, yes, in a globalized world, social memory is fragmenting more and more or is assuming a kind of a new 
spatial context, possibly through the Internet and social media, and it's becoming less and less place-based as it was in the past. So maybe our notion of community resilience in that sense is, is maybe a slightly idealized version of what communities are these days, especially in the mm-hmm. Western world, but it's really it's a global phenomenon, isn't it? Well, you, you've, you've used a fantastic example of your own little village. It, for our business continuity people out there and our disaster planners and city planners and those people that listen, is it worthwhile, and I'm not going to put you on the spot, You know, is it worthwhile to start small with this resiliency first and then build up rather than trying to tackle everything at once, you know, in the big picture? Because a lot of people are always saying, you know, we need a plan to deal with XYZ, and XYZ is huge. You know, it's going to take years. But your example of the you know, smaller village that has, you know, stronger ties is probably a better spot to, to start, I, I would suggest, you know, or think, rather than yeah, I mean, trying I, I to would tackle everything. Say that, yeah, the, the local level is, is, should, be, should be easier to tackle than the regional, national, global level. I mean, I've, I must admit that I have problems with, with those who talk about urban resilience, uh, certainly with those who talk about re- regional resilience, i.e. region, you know, in a, in a kind of much broader geographical scale, because to me, it becomes quite difficult to actually conceptualize what the different components of that resilience would be, whereas if I talk about a local community, certainly in my mind, I can, I can visualize a unit of people where mm-hmm. you can actually help them with practical things, as we've discussed. So uh, I personally would agree, yes, that start at the local level, like the Transition Town Movement is trying to do. I mean, my understanding of the Transition Town Movement is that, on the whole, it is actually small-ish communities rather than huge urban uh, conglomerations you know, of millions of people. But, of course, an urban geographer, for example, an urban researcher would argue, well, an urban area is just an accumulation of multiple communities. So you could disaggregate any system into small, smaller communities and then scale it up from there. So I wouldn't have a problem with that. But there is an issue if you then scale it up too high. So I'm not sure if we can talk about national resilience. I guess we can with regard you know, to certain things about national security, for example. But in terms of the things we're talking about, especially when we talk about environmental transitions and things like that, I I find it quite difficult to to talk about these huge scales, but there are quite a few of my colleagues, you know, resilience researchers, who are really adopting a a much broader and kind of macro-scalar approach to resilience. So, you know, your readers need to bear in mind, my perspective on resilience is only one of many, and I'm always very keen to understand the local level. And linked to that is because probably because I studied also anthropology. So I'm a geographer, but I also study anthropology. And anthropology, cultural anthropology, always, in my view, starts with the local and with local communities. So I've been mm-hmm. quite influenced by that. But not everybody would agree you know, with, that, with, that, with that scale of, of research on resilience. Well, I'm right there. We've come to the end of our second break. I do have some comments about what um, yeah, we just uh, discussed there, Jeff, so I'll be touching base on that. But we're talking today with Professor Jeff Wilson, author of Community Resilience and Environmental Transitions. We'll be right back.
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. All round the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected and welcome back to the show. We're talking with Professor Jeff Wilson, author of Community Resilience and Environmental Transitions. Jeff, just before we went away on break, um, you, you were talking about you know some of the larger scale uh, resilience. And during the break, uh, I mentioned that it got me thinking of small, uh, you know, tackling some of those larger resilient cities, you know, by neighborhoods. Um, and it got me thinking of an example in. Uh, Manila, Philippines, where I attended a conference there last year, and they were approaching uh, some different neighborhoods because they suffer from floods all the time, and they were tackling neighborhood by neighborhood to make sure that they were diverting water away, and once they have this thing completed, hopefully they're not going to have all these floods anymore, you know, as one example, you know, so couldn't we do that as well, you know, for some of these planners, you know, that you mentioned, you know, big city planners who look, you know, they could break it down into small, manageable parts, could they not? Yeah, I, I mean, I think in principle, yes. I mean, any urban area could, could be disaggregated into smaller units, and the, the neighborhood would be one way to do it. But I, I can immediately see some problems in terms of implementing resilience policies at that, at that level, because very often your neighborhood is actually not your administrative or, if you want, bureaucratic boundary, it's embedded within something that is bigger. And if you think about the complexity of cities around the world, especially in huge conurbations, uh, often in developing countries, you know, with more than 5, 10, 15 million people, if you think about how just uh, over a very short distance, 
the challenges for neighborhoods change within cities, I think that would be one of the challenges. Yes, you can do it by neighborhood if if the governance structures of the city enable that. I would dare say in most cases, probably the administrative units within which policies would be implemented would make that quite difficult. And also the disparity in terms of income, pressures, uh, disturbances that these that these um, individual city units are facing. But in principle, I think, yes, everybody would agree that why not start, start with the neighborhoods, build up resilience from there, and then hopefully it will kind of mushroom out uh, in, into the wider area. There are not many examples I can think of, though, that I'm aware of, where this has happened at a huge scale. I mean, we're talking about cities with millions of people. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, we also need to acknowledge that when you talk about the most vulnerable populations, you know, whether it's in small communities or large communities, are usually the poorest people, the most vulnerable, the politically least powerful. So if you think about Hurricane Katrina, you know, for example, and, and, and New Orleans, and the, the communities and people who were affected there, and there's some very good good research that's been done, uh, mainly by American researchers, on on the resilience aspects of that. It's pretty clear that not all communities, not all neighborhoods in New Orleans were affected in the same way. So again, you need to disentangle Mm -hmm. that by economic, social, possibly even cultural factors to understand why some were so much more affected by that disaster than other communities. So, of course, not every neighborhood had the same needs with regard to actually building resilience. Some communities in New Orleans were actually very resilient even during the hurricane, while the neighboring community or neighborhood actually wasn't. So, again, quite difficult, you know, to then find policies that would address these issues, you know, for a city as a whole. So let's move to a little bit of a different focus. We've identified... Uh, you know, resilient communities and some of the things they can do, some of, you know, how to approach it. How do we, you know, if we're looking at the communities, how do we identify almost right away that's not a resilient committed, uh, you know, community? How do we identify those right away? Yeah. Uh, I mean, as, as I said earlier, I think the ones that have huge problems are actually easier to identify than, than communities that are actually quite resilient. I mean, our research in in these different sociocultural contexts, I mentioned China, I mentioned the European Alps, Africa, um, highlights that actually most communities are what we call moderately resilient. I mean, that, you know, you would expect that. I mean, they're still there. They're surviving. Some are doing reasonably well, but as I said earlier, some aspects, you know, may not be as resilient as they could be. So I think there is this kind of fuzzy middle in terms of communities that are doing okay and they would cope all right, we would predict, if it comes to either a natural or human-made disturbance. But it's easier to identify communities that are really at the other end of the spectrum, i.e. at the vulnerable end of the spectrum, if we see vulnerability as the opposite end of the spectrum of resilience. And I think this is where policies, policymakers can really help communities. I mean, these are communities, they don't necessarily have to be poor. It's not always about money and economics. It may be, indeed, the breakdown of social structures, for example. And, of course, that's not that easy um, to tackle with regard to policy. But if you identify the problem, for example, that the problem is all the young people of the community are moving out, and we, we have seen that right across the globe. Pretty much all communities we've looked at 
are suffering from the out-migration of young people, and they tend to move from smaller rural communities into larger urban centers. I mean, China is a classic example of that, but it's also happening in mm-hmm. Austria. Yeah, in the small mountain community in Austria, they're losing the young people, so they're losing the continuity in the community with regard to the social memory we talked about earlier, with regard to the link between people and their community, because not all of these young people are eventually coming back. They may stay away, and, and that's pretty much it. So here, you know, you've got very tangible things you could do. So what is happening in Austria as a relatively wealthy country, they are actually trying to put things into place to make the small remote mountain communities more attractive for young people to stay in, i.e. by job creation schemes, for example, that interest young people. By not mm-hmm. closing the local village school, for example, by not closing all the shops and services in the communities, you need a certain amount of money and goodwill to do that, but you can identify things to improve the resilience. So, yes, I think we can identify traits in communities that clearly show uh, vulnerability and maybe where vulnerability is getting worse. And you can, in my view, then advise policymakers to say, look, if you do this and this and this, you may not solve all the problems, but you will certainly increase that aspect of the vulnerability, i.e. Raise, raise the resilience level of the community. Do we have to wait for things to get bad before we try and implement and you know, change policy and, and things like that? You know, or can we just you know, <laughs> That is a good start. question again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, is, is effectively, is the system entirely reactive or could it be a little bit more proactive? And as usual, the answer is, well, it's a bit of both. I mean, you know, human beings, I think we're all the same anywhere on the planet, whether it's within our families, within our communities, or within a wider context. We need often a little bit of a nudge, you know, to get, to get things going. So, yes, you may have very altruistic individuals in communities who can foresee what may happen to a community. But unfortunately, quite often, you know, communities or leaders or people living in communities, they're not sure what's going to happen. You know, they're not sure what disturbances will happen. I mean, look, look at Britain and Brexit, you know. Two and a half years ago before the referendum, nobody would have thought that something like Brexit could challenge the resilience of British mm-hmm. communities. So it's something that, you know, is sprung onto them. That's a clear anthropogenic disturbance, possibly, uh, that may have huge impacts for generations for communities. So it's quite difficult to actually predict what kind of disturbances a community needs to be prepared for, and you need, I think, pretty altruistic people to be able to say, okay, we, you know, we think we're resilient, but we could make the system even more resilient just in case. And it's very difficult to take people along with that, especially if your measures to increase resilience will actually cost money. And, and this is where it often breaks down. So, yes, unfortunately, in many cases, you need this kind of nudge, this disturbance to highlight, oops, our system is actually quite vulnerable, and we should have done this in the past, had we known, but we didn't for X, Y, and Z reasons. Now we really need to get going. But unfortunately for some communities, it's then too late already, and the community may not be able to cope and survive the disturbance they're, they're facing. But I just can't see this changing much. You know, it, it, it just I think the systems within which we operate as people are just not in place to be that, uh, that able to, to, to look into the future sufficiently. 
Yeah, I was asking because uh, in the business continuity disaster realm, there's always this need to get executive buy-in, you know, from you know their leaders of their organization for for doing you know all kinds of things. So I was wondering, mm. you know, we don't necessarily have to have scare ta- tactics in place, you know, and scare everybody into doing this. No, that is true, and this is where this notion of social memory comes in again. I mean, social memory is particularly important if you have a community that is affected by same or similar disturbances over and over again. I mean, it could be a natural disturbance such as a hurricane, for example. So, of course, you learn from experience if your community has survived or if you have examples of communities that have survived better than your own, what can you learn um, from best practice, if you want? So, yes, clearly, there are learning processes uh, along the way. But nonetheless, I still think that on the whole, from our experience, it usually is more of a top-down process than a bottom-up process. Of course, communities, yes, they, they, some have been resilient for thousands of years without any help from outside, and they've survived very well. But in a modern, globalized world with quite rigid political structures and, and quite established ways, you know, how the rule of law and policies are implemented, quite often, I think, unfortunately, maybe you rely on the goodwill of those who actually have the political and, as you suggest, the economic power to do that too. I mean, yes, the business community also needs to come on board and needs to help communities to be more resilient, but they will not do it if it costs them money and if they're unsure that it's actually a disturbance that will affect the community. My, my thinking would be that businesses will be reluctant to spend money on something, you know, where they don't know whether it's going to happen. But it's, again, it's about communication between different stakeholder groups. It's about learning from past mistakes. It's about learning from best practice, i.e. other communities where things possibly work better than in your own community. And it's about bringing people together and so that people talk to each other. Very often we find that's the problem in communities. People just don't talk to each other. They're not aware of the individual bits that are happening in other parts of the community. And although they may have a lot of capacity in the community, there is just no awareness of that. So it's, you know, simple things, and that wouldn't cost a lot of money. That's, again, a little bit what the Transition Town Initiative is trying to do. It's trying to actually improve communication among stakeholder mm-hmm. groups is one of its key. And I think that, that's very good, you know. The more you talk, the more you learn about the interests and expectations of people who are different from you but live with you in a community, uh, the more resilient your community will be. And believe it or not, we are down to our last minute. So, uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining and talking about uh, you know, community resilience. And I want to remind everyone of Jeff, community resilience and environmental transitions. Jeff, thanks very much. Um, uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to get a whole, some whole new perspectives out there. Um, so I really hope uh, you know you continue with your research and uh, you know you help uh, help drive some of these changes down the road. Thank you much. It's been a great pleasure being on your show. My pleasure uh, having you here. And to everybody out there, uh, again, if there's a topic you want us to talk about, please let me know. We'll be at uh, Phoenix for the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference, September 29th to October 2nd. Um, check out boastassessment.com from Stone Road to help monitor your own program progress, uh, you know, your business continuity programs. And in the meantime, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.